This is the Leading Second Podcast, where we're on a mission to equip local churches everywhere to raise up uncommon leaders. The Leading Second Podcast releases every Thursday morning. So hit follow and share this episode with your team. Now let's jump into another episode for all of us who lead from the middle. This is the year of the leader. This is the Leading Second Podcast. Hey, Leading Second, Brandon here. Welcome back to season six of the Leading Second podcast. So excited and honored to have you in this space today. And hey, we are in the middle of an important series of conversations, some topics that we decided we needed to invade and elevate here on the podcast in this space, throw the doors wide open to lead pastors, to the whole team, because we believe there's some important things we need to be talking about in the church right now. And we're right in the middle of that conversation. Uh, If you're just joining us for this episode, parts one and two are up. I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those first. But I'm so excited for today. Today, we are talking racial unity in the church and what that means for church leaders. We're going to go there. And I'm so excited today to welcome to the podcast, Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity. It's a powerful conversation that I believe is going to help all of us have some biblical handles around a very um, important topic right now. You know, the angle we're approaching these conversations on is as a church, we believe we need to be woke to woke. (laughs) In other words, we need to wake up ourselves and realize the game has changed since 2019. Uh, We are leading among a new landscape with some new challenges, and it's important we address them. So we're doing that here on the podcast. I'm so excited you're here today. Before we get into today's conversation, I want to make a couple of announcements. First of all, coaching group applications are open. Uh, We are so excited uh, to be welcoming in a fresh intake uh, of participants this fall into our coaching group space. This is our 12-month journey to help you master the art of second chair leadership. I'd encourage you to head to leadingsecond.com to learn more. But if you are an executive pastor, campus pastor, you're a direct report you know, to your pastor, you serve on your church's lead team. This is a crucial space for you. And it would be my honor and our coaches team's honor uh, to walk with you this year to help you level up your leadership. So head to leadingsecond.com for more information on that. I also want to highlight that we have a new space that we've created over the last few months called Leading Second Plus. This is our online learning site that we have created with with micro courses, leadership labs, live events. This is our home for content on the World Wide Web, and it is yours for a monthly subscription. And I particularly wanted to highlight, we have a course in Leading Second Plus, it was one of our first, called Uncommon. And some of the things we're talking about here on the podcast this summer will, to a degree, parallel that course. We're asking ourselves in that course, what does the leader look like that's going to go the distance in this new season in which we find ourselves leading? We talk about the biblically faithful leader and the kingdom-centered leader and some other topics. And I believe if today's conversation stirs you, um, that is a course that you could use for yourself and your team to help you frame in leadership as we lead an important time. So leadingsecondplus.com is the place you would go to find out about what a subscription or a free trial looks like there. We'd love to have you a part of that growing community. Okay, today, here we go. Monique Dusson is joining us, a, a special guest, a friend to Leading Second in this space. She has a heart for the local church. She founded or co-founded the uh, Center for Biblical Unity, uh, such an important Uh, ministry and space that I follow, I would encourage you to as well. We're going to talk to her today on racial unity. She has a powerful perspective I believe we all need to hear. So without further ado, uh, Pastor Joshua Bingle, Jason Warman, and I are back uh, interviewing Monique Dusan. Let's go to it. Well, I'm so excited to be talking today uh, with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity. Say hello to everybody. Hello. 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 Thanks for having me on. Welcome. I'm so glad uh, you're joining us on the Leading Second podcast today. I just have to give you some honor. I am so thankful for your voice and for your work. Uh, became familiar with you when uh, uh, my pastor talked with you on our Team Church podcast uh, a couple of years ago when we were all trying to get our minds back <laughs> after 
after uh, crazy hit our world in 2020. And you you have brought so much clarity and so much wisdom. I just want to thank you for your work. We we love and honor you. Uh, well, thank you, you very do. much. My goodness. I give all glory and praise to God for it. I just, I'm thankful for the work that he allows me to do every day. And as we'll keep doing it as long as he allows. Absolutely. And join again today for this series of conversations with Pastor Joshua Bingle from Genesis Church. Hey, everybody. Welcome back, my friend, and Pastor Jason Warman from Coast Life Church. Hey, guys. So good to be with you. We're back, guys. We've been having some important conversations. And uh, in fact, the last couple of episodes, um, if you're just diving into this series of conversations, uh, we've talked about... um, what it means to be woke. Uh, we've talked about postmodernism and critical theory. We've been sort of shining light onto the fact that the game has changed for us as church leaders, and we cannot afford to ignore that anymore. Uh, and then our last episode, we talked a little bit more uh, in depth on it. We talked about some gender ideology. We talked about boycotting Target. We talked about all the all the stuff in there. So um, we, we've had a, a, a good series of conversations, but today... Uh, we're gonna have a really important conversation on on race uh, and and what it means for the church and and church leaders right now. And Monique, we invited you on because you have had this conversation so well. Um, and of course, I've become aware the last couple of years. I'd love if you would start us out today and just share your personal story. How did you get started doing the work that you're doing today in this regard? Quite by accident. I um, was born and raised in South Central Los Angeles. I grew up with what is probably considered like a pseudo critical race theory worldview. Um, Mm. It's all the tenets of critical race theory. It was just never, you know, officially called critical race theory where, you know, we believe that, you know, all white people are racist, that the system is rigged against you. It is, you know, rigged for white people, that racism will always be there. Um, There was just a lot of the, the, foundational beliefs of critical race theory that were just present on the street in me growing up. Um, I came into faith at 15, right before my 16th birthday. And there is where I started a journey with Christ. Unfortunately, I started a journey with Christ. Also, um, at the same time, really starting a journey deeper into justice and social justice. My heart has always been bent toward justice. And so the two kind of just grew up together. When I entered into college, I went to Biola University. That's where the thought of critical race theory or social justice and like this racial reconciliation and all of those things were really um, nurtured in my heart. And I was really taught um, more of the principles of that and what that looks like in real time. And so now I am fully understanding like Christianity and social justice and what that means to live together and how to live as a good person according to these principles. I I worked in social service for a number of years with that belief as a Christian. I did missions work in Africa as a Christian and in Haiti Mm. as a Christian with these, with this, with this view. Um, But what people don't understand is that with this view also comes advocacy for sinful nature as well. So I can't be a critical like race theorist, or I can't be a social justice warrior and not advocate for a woman's right to choose. Mm because that would be an injustice. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's, there's all of these things that I still grapple with, you know, like not, you know, was I safe? Like, you know, God, what, how would you have worked out the fact that I stood for abortion and I said, I loved you, you know, but there's, there's not a lot of conversation on what does the word of God mean in context in that worldview. So when I moved home from South Africa in 2018, I started getting the conversations with a friend of mine, Krista Bontrager, and she just began challenging me. Now she's white, And she began challenging me on my worldviews. And so automatically from my position, I was like, well, that's just racist. You asking that question, that's racist. The word of God in context, only white people look at the context. Um, Hermeneutics and exegesis, that's white. Like, Lord. God help us. Yes. So it wasn't until I started praying for her to see her whiteness. Like literally that was my prayer. Father, show her Jesus. 
won't you do it? And in the middle of that, the Lord began to orchestrate specific events outside of me and Krista's conversation that showed me the real time impact of what this worldview um, meant to humans, wow. not just Christians, but people. And I began to really begin to like doubt this framework. And then the Lord just led me as I read the word of God in context, like whole chapters and books, not just, you know, one verse. And that's where I, my worldview parted, like it parted from Christianity and I had to choose which road I was going to walk down because now it's clear. And yeah. so I chose the Christian road. And shortly after that, the Center for Biblical mm-hmm. Unity was birthed and it was no plan of my own. Um, I just was driving and felt the Center for Biblical Unity in my heart. And I'm like, what is that? <laughs> and within a year, um, I had formed, like did all the paperwork to form a nonprofit and things like that and did our first like public conversation about it. And so that that's it. Like that's our road. Beautiful. I chose the Christian road that, um, maybe the most important thing we say all day is, and the way that we've phrased it in the episodes in this series is that we're, we're living and seeing the collision of two kingdoms, you know, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And if it feels like fireworks right now, it's because we have two kingdoms that are colliding. And yeah. as Christians, our highest priority is to pray for his kingdom to come, right? And his yeah. will to be done. So I'm I'm forever grateful you chose that path. Uh, let me just dive in. And, and I would encourage everybody to, who's listening today to follow you and uh, the Center for Biblical Unity. And we're going to share some resources throughout the episode that you have to offer as well. But l- let me just kind of set you loose and then... Uh, Pastor Josh and Jason are going to help me um, just pick your brain a little bit and get your perspective here today. But to get us started, you know, the the world is inviting Christians and church leaders to adopt a secular, godless worldview. And, you know, it has many branches. Of course, the trunk is critical theory, many branches, critical race theory, being one of them, you know, the idea is, is built, it's built on this idea that if you want to be a good person, uh, this is what that looks like. You know, in, in 2020, our race, everyone felt, you know, like we were in this race to all declare, I'm not a racist. I'm a good person. I'm not a racist. And, and, and because our world had such a knee jerk reaction to declare, I'm not racist or, you know, something like that, our, our world then prescribe, well, if you're not racist, then this is what that looks like. If you want to be a good person, this is what that looks like. Can you, can you talk to us about this for a minute? And can you help the church leader that is seeing this language and it sounds good, but it's really coming from a worldview that's not a kingdom worldview. Can you just talk to us about that for a minute? Definitely. So one of the things I failed to mention in my introduction is that the woman I was speaking with, Krista Bontrager, now actually is my ministry partner. So we're in ministry together. And what we say at the Center for Biblical Unity is that there's a new righteousness or a new moral Mm. code. And now hear me out. I'm not saying that for the, you know, historic Christian Orthodox believer that there's a new righteousness or a new moral code. We follow God's law, not for salvation, but his transcultural principles. So we follow God's, we we follow the scriptures. That's our moral code. But the world is putting forth a new moral code for all of humanity, all humans. And it's to be anti-racist. It is to stand for the critical social theories, to be an ally, to read the books, to do the work. All of these things present or form the new moral code on what it means to be a good or righteous person. Now, when you're saying when you're saying that there's like two worldviews or two kingdoms colliding, it's because we have already been given the moral code. We can look back That's at right. God's transcultural principles. I can look at the Ten Commandments. I can look at Jesus's words to love your neighbor, um, to love God and to love your neighbor. I can look at the fruit of the spirit. We have the rules for how we participate with life. 
what anti-racists are saying or what critical social theorists are saying is that you must do all of these works. For example, Ibram Kendi says that there is no not racist. So in 2020, everybody threw their hands up and they were like, I'm not a racist. I'm not a racist. But that wasn't good enough. What they said was, mm. it's, Kendi specifically says, it is not good enough to not be racist. To not be racist is to uphold racism. You must be anti-racist, actively deconstructing white systems, um, racist policies, and all of these things. That's similar to what Robin D'Angelo says as well. But you will also find that that's similar to what some evangelical leaders are also proposing. When you, when you talk about systems, when, when the word systems is used, um, how would you, how would you explain that to somebody today who is, is sitting there, they're hearing that, like, we've got to dismantle systems. The, the system is racist, that, that, that type of ideology, like to, to a layman, I think they hear that. And it's such, it, it's such an ambiguous word that anybody can fill in a definition, which is sort of the problem with what we're dealing with today is we all we all give our own definitions and we define what truth is and all of that kind of stuff. But would you just like for those that maybe are, are stepping into this conversation, what what would you describe? As, how would you describe the system in, in that worldview versus what I would describe the, our system is the kingdom of God. Like we're, we're trying to live according to a kingdom that God has given us that transcends our race, our skin color, all of that kind of stuff. Would you just kind of, hopefully this is a, a question that'll, that'll help somebody just kind of define what that worldview is as a system versus kind of what we would look at as like a, a kingdom mentality and Jesus as our ruler. So when we talk about a system or like a systems theory, systemic racism, those kind of things, what people are looking at um, are macro systems by and large. And they're looking at things like the judicial system. So within the judicial system, you have the jail system, you have the court system, you have um like policing and things like that. And what they're saying is that because of the found the foundation of America, because slavery um, goes back or dates back to before the constitution, that America itself has been built on racist systems, that America from the beginning has had racism embedded or codified into just the entire structure of how we do things. So the, and before I even go down that road, the, the result or the way that you can tell if a system is in place or a racist system is in place is seen by disparate outcomes. So when you see there are more black people in jail than there are white people, you can tell that there is a system in place that is disenfranchising or disadvantaging minority people, specifically black people. So the system itself is all of the the larger um, the larger structures in America, the housing system, the banking system, the judicial system, or um, like the the policing system, and how all of that works together to impact disparate outcomes toward minorities. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, it does. And is it fair to say, like, was when I look at some of these conversations, is it fair to say that even the family structure, even gender starts to play into this? Like, so much of this seems to be, uh, like, when you when you step into this environment, I think of Black Lives Matters and some of their stated values uh, that that organization had, it was like the dismantling of the family. It was like uh, a, a, a lack of recognition of gender. Um, and like, it, it just seems like there's everything is defined as a system. And then through that lens, everything becomes racist. So what you're, what you're looking at is going more into queer theory and the dismantling of heteronormative, um, structures. So how is the heteronormative family structure seen as normal versus the mm. queer structure seen as 
abnormal. How do systems like the education system or the banking system or the judicial system favor heteronormative structures or people over those who might be queer? How do um, religious structures even support or favor those who are, you know, heteronormative or identify as straight, I'll just say that, versus those who identify as LGBTQ plus or LGBTQ plus affirming. So I will use myself and my church as an example. When we look at the Orthodox Christian church who upholds, you know, historic values, we would say while someone who may be struggling with the sin of homosexuality, like we're not going to turn someone away for struggling with a sin. Here are the words. They are struggling with a sin versus the person who is actively living in the lifestyle. The goal for the queer or, or the queer theorists, those who uphold LGBTQ plus ideology and things like that would say the fact that we do not affirm queer theory, homosexuality, all of that, we are now oppressive. And so the dismantling of the heteronormative structure allows for the queer structure to come in and be seen as normal. Right. And I think one point that has really got me right here, the last little bit is that all of that is true, but but it becomes a major problem when our world has now replaced sin with systems. We no longer see sin. You know, the greatest sin are the systems and the people on top of those systems. I, I heard the idea proposed, and I mentioned this in the last episode, the idea proposed that, that you know, poor people wouldn't steal if rich people didn't exist or in, in other words no no responsibility for for personal sin ethics the 10 commandments you know none of that would be a problem i only do that because the people in power force me to in other words the the system is the problem not sin being the problem. And to me, that that's where this really becomes an issue for us as church leaders is our world is even redefining what sin even is, you know, oh, almost, yeah. almost unwilling to look at sin. I guess you have a comment on that. Definitely. I think that, um, and not even, I think when we read first sources, when we read social justice material, or anti-racist material, what we see is, is the moving away from this autonomous, you as the individual are, um, you know, are responsible for your actions. Actually that rugged individualism and autonomy and things like that are now considered whiteness. If you go onto the Smithsonian's, um, whiteness infographic, you see all of what they list out as being parts of whiteness. So our worldview, the things that we read in the scriptures that tell me that I am responsible for my individual sin and my heart before the Lord, that's now seen as whiteness in, in, um, in, in, in exchange for this idea of systems that we um, live according to the group, that what you have, I should have, that the, the those who are seen as the oppressed should revolt against these systems that are now keeping them down, that are oppressing them. But in reality, we haven't taken time to look at choices. We haven't taken time to look at responsibility or autonomy. And that goes into the idea that we, when we don't look at things like autonomy, individuality, responsibility, and blame everything on a system, we can skew the data that actually comes from the system. So yes, disparate outcomes may be true. There may be more Black people in jail, but is that correlative or is it causative? So we need to ask the question of, are there more Black people in jail because there are more Black people committing crimes? because of whatever, you know, their own choice and things like that? Or are there more Black people in jail because the system is truly rigged against them? Those are two right. different different questions right. that, you know, we won't have an answer to until we have correct yeah. data for. So 
let, let's let's just dive in specifically on race for just a minute here. Why why should this conversation matter to a pastor? And why do church leaders right now need to have a clear conviction and approach to racial topics and racial unity in their churches? So this this conversation, I believe, is extremely important to like in the church specifically, because when we don't address it, when we just kind of let it fly by, we are we will inadvertently allow a door or a crack to be open for a heterodox conversation to come into the church. The idea of critical race theory and the critical social theories overall are antithetical to the Christian worldview. They, they are not formed on a foundation of Jesus. They do not right. have the principles of scripture and, and, you know, all that we uphold. They actually are divisive. So when we think about, you know, how do I arm believers? How do I train up people? How do I shepherd my flock from getting plucked off by wolves? Well, one of the things we need to do is define what is a wolf. How do you know what a wolf looks like? How do you know what a wolf sounds like? Because if I just allow my my congregants or those who are following me to just, you know, live willy nilly, hey, we, everybody's good. Well, then they may not be able to distinguish the sheep and the shepherd's voice from that of a wolf who could also lead them astray. Mm. Many of the critical social theories I could, in principle, agree with when they are put forward as they are all flowery and beautiful. So we just need to uphold justice. We need to fight for the rights of the oppressed. We need to X, Y, and Z. Uh, Micah 6, where it says you need to you know, do justice and walk humbly with your God. Great, we do. But how are you defining justice? And this is where that bait and switch comes in. And the yep. wolf actually will pluck away your people. So the do justice according to social justice is fight for the rights of LGBTQ plus people. Um, become an ally support abortion, support all of the women's rights, the reproductive justice. This is where people get confused because when we have someone who has adopted the secular position and they use the same term as justice, well, the Bible also tells me to do justice. So I'm gonna go over here with these people. It's a lot more fun and nobody's going to, you know, condemn me. Or when they say, well, you just need to love your neighbor. Well, what is the definition of love that you're using? When people say, go. well, you know, love is the gospel. Love is not gospel. Love is law. Love comes from the Old Testament. It comes from the law. We see love walked out in the person of Jesus. But we, if we're not upholding and teaching these, these principles in our churches, then we we run the risk of allowing our people to be plucked off and this is why i think that this conversation in the church is so vital it's also vital because it's so divisive when critical yeah. race theory comes in or or black liberation comes in and says well there's black and there's white and if you're white you need to do all of these works in order to come to the table of racial reconciliation and have unity with your black brothers and sisters tell me the verse where you found that from because right. I don't I don't see it. But what we do see is in Second Corinthians five, where I'm not going to treat you according to the old man. So if you were a racist, we bring you in and disciple you. Um, we see that in Christ, there is no Jew, no Gentile, no Scythian, barbarian, slave free. So when we come in the house of God, when we come together, we're not playing by these rules that culture wants to establish for us of whiteness and anti-racism and black liberation theology and BLM and all of those things. We don't do that. But when pastors are unaware of this and they want to uphold the moral code of the culture. They want to be seen as good. They don't want to be doxxed or canceled by the culture and have people protesting on their lawns. They go the cultural route and that will send your people to hell. Hey, this is Clark from the Leading Second team. Before we jump back into the episode, I wanted to share a quick testimony from our Leading Second coaching groups. Let's check this out. What is up, Leading Second family? I hope you guys are well. My name is Chris Amatrano, and I am planted at Fountain Church, and I have the honor to oversee our small groups and our youth ministry. And being a part of the coaching group, it's hard for me to put into words 
um, all that God has done and how it's impacted me. But what I can tell you is that it's been transformative. I came into the coaching group a little beat up. I wasn't questioning my calling, but my assignment felt tough. Um, it felt heavy, and I just felt stuck in general. But I can tell you that when I came to our coaching group, it literally felt like we were in a leadership gym every single month. We were challenged. We were encouraged. The content was world-class. But I, I would even say beyond the content, the part that impacted me the most is having coaches and leaders and co-laborers with us that love Jesus, love the church, and love the role they were in, and they wanted to grow in it. Just being in that type of environment, it strengthened me, and it, and it, and it forced me to dig deeper wells inside of myself, and not just in my ministry life, but also in, in, my, in my personal life. So I can tell you with confidence that I am not the same leader I was a year ago, my calling, my assignment, my confidence has never been more dialed in than it has been right now. So if you want to grow and if you want to lead strong in your role in the second chair, you're not going to find a better place to do that than in our coaching groups. So I am beyond grateful for my coach, Matt Martin, who's been a great voice of truth and grace in my life. And I am so grateful for Pastor Brandon Lindsay for really creating an atmosphere and a tribe for second chair leaders to grow and to thrive in their role. If you want to learn more, you can visit leadingsecond.com. Applications close August 23rd. Spots are limited, so apply today. And now let's jump back into the episode. Monique, how would you um, say, like imagine you are a youth pastor, a young adult pastor, or someone who's trying to serve, make disciples, disciple young people. How would one know... Um, maybe it's some quick hits you could give us, but you're saying that the wolves will come in. Um, how would, how would one know what they should be reading, should not be reading if an idea is kingdom, if it's not, um, because, and the reason I ask this is because there are many people who claim to be Christians, many leading Christian publications that we lost a decade ago, many seminaries that we lost two decades ago, but because they, you know, maybe they're a PhD in this and a PhD in that who claims to be Christian. And this is the, how would someone know this is a wolf? How would someone know to be able to um, speak to the students in their ministry or their staff um, to keep the wolves at bay? Is it a, a quick set of principles or are you, are you, would you say, Josh, you're, you're asking a question that's going to take six months, a year, like, how would they know? <laughs> oh, goodness gracious. So first and foremost, we need to know the truth. We need to know the, the word of God in context. And this is where many youth pastors and youth leaders and even senior pastors and women's ministry leaders and all of these things where we're failing. Mm. I think it was a Barna study that came out that looked at the statistics of um, leaders in the church who had biblical worldviews, youth leaders and youth pastors who had biblical worldviews. These numbers are very small. If our leaders don't know the truth, I cannot believe that my child will go to youth group and know the truth. So that right. tells me that I must take the responsibility off of youth leaders and youth pastors to teach my child the truth. So, but in, in favor of your question, youth leaders, youth pastors have to first know the truth. You have to be able to know what does the word of God say about humans? Start in Genesis. What does God say about all humans across all times and places in Genesis? That we are male and female. We are created to work. We are created in God's image. We are meant for procreation. We are created to be married. We are meant to go out and cultivate society. The, we are meant for worship. Like these are the things that we see in the early books of Genesis. This is our creation identity. Now there's something different for us as being born again or being children of God that we see in the New Testament as who we are as children of God. But this is the this is the foundation of what young people need to know. We can look at Acts 17 that reaffirms Genesis where it says from one man, God created all the nations. Help! We need to help children, young people understand what the word of God says about humans and what our role is in the earth 
And then once that once that is solidified, you can begin to show them um, regular, show them a cartoon, show them, you know, help let them read a book that's their age where they where it where it already has some of the fallacies or some of the um, thinking or principles that are antithetical to Christianity and allow them to begin to pluck those things out. But we yeah. can't do that if they don't have the foundation that's needed to even understand what their worldview is in the first place. We want to jump to, I need to teach my kid about critical race theory so that they don't uh, they don't believe in it. No, you need to teach your kid the scripture because that's that right. is going to be the place where they learn what their worldview is. Critical race theory is only one of hundreds of thousands of anti-biblical, antithetical to Christianity worldviews. So teach your child what they should be walking in. So when that false wolf comes up, they can say, oh, you're a wolf. You got to go. It's so good. And I just to belabor this for one quick minute, because I think this is so worth emphasizing. I cannot implore youth pastors and children's pastors enough to work in partnership with parents. Parents have the, the the toughest job in the world right now of choosing when to insert these conversations in you know in, into their child's life, when to go. We recently had to talk to our daughter about the the, the trans issue because it was popping up at her school, you know, and and it was it was so tough. It was it was the worst the worst conversation we had all year. I mean, it went well, but but it was it was difficult. It was hard. It was I hated as a parent having to. And I'm thankful for a church. I, I am a part of a church that works in partnership with us. And I cannot implore youth pastors and children's pastors enough to to communicate with parents, work in tandem with parents, because we can really lay the right foundation for our kids. We've got a shot at it, but we've got to, like you said, know the word of God, and we've got to work together on this. Um, so I, I just wanted to underscore that. And I, our, our, our heart is with every youth pastor out there who has to prepare for one of these conversations. Um, because we, we know you're on the front lines and we know that you're, you're doing really important work. Um, everything Monique said is just so brilliant of knowing and being grounded in, um, the word of God. Let me just ask you a super practical question, Monique, switching gears for a minute. So, so I'm thinking of the pastor or leadership team. Okay, we want to be clear and we we want to help our church. We 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 want to have a clear conviction about this, a clear voice around the scriptures for this in our church. Like just what does that practically look like? Have you have you seen churches that are doing this well? You know, and like what does that practically look like right now? Practically, it looks like not shying away from it. So I personally, like we have, we have churches who bring us in to help facilitate conversations on race, racism, and justice. We do trainings at different churches or schools, businesses about race, racism, and justice. And so we are, um, we are definitely helping to facilitate that to come in and as a parachurch ministry to undergird pastors and leaders in walking people through this conversation. I personally don't believe that this is that, you know, like critical race theory or queer theory is something that on a Sunday morning, I'm this Sunday morning, we're just going to talk about queer theory and I'm just going to train you on what that is. <laughs> I believe that our Sunday mornings are meant to exalt God and his word. And so you might do an entire, you know, if it, and I, I'm more um, expositional. Like I, I appreciate when we kind of read the word of God all the way through, like in context and stuff like that, but you might get to, you know, Acts and, you know, Acts 17 is, is, you know, your, your chapter that day. And you're reading where God created all, you know, people from one man. Well, what does it look like then after church or on the Saturday before to have, you know, Chris and I come in and really train your people on what is race and justice and unity? What does it look like for the believer? Because our unity is completely different than the unity of the world. So I do, I, I have seen um, churches do it well. We are in conversations right now with churches who are looking to um, have this conversation well without, I don't want to say stealing, but having this 
thought of like, well, you know, my people only want to come out on Sundays or on Saturdays or they're busy and I can't take my Sunday morning time from this. But, you know, what does it look like to have to have us come in before a church service and do a Sunday school time or after church or you serve lunch and you have us um, present on these issues where people can ask their questions? The Center for Biblical Unity was formed so that people can have safe conversations and respectable conversations on race and racism and not um, not feel lambasted or um, run over in the conversations or because I bear white skin, I can't, you know, ask this question. I get people who ask me questions all the time about all kinds of things. And the first thing, well, you know, as a white person, I'm not sure if I can ask. No, just ask the question because we're <laughs> brothers and sisters first and I'm going to offer you the truth of scripture first. Yeah. So... That I, I, is that answering your question? I think that that would be uh, it does a, one way of doing it. And you also have a curriculum as well um, on on some of these issues. Is that correct? Yes, we have a curriculum called Reconciled, and Reconciled is a six week study that really just does a deep dive into our reconciliation in Christ as believers, our unity as believers. You know the the racial reconciliation model we uphold, we uphold a biblical unity model versus what many churches or lay people consider a racial reconciliation model. There's a lot of distinctions mm. within that, but when we talk about being reconciled, the, the ministry of reconciliation that many people will say, well, we, we have to do racial reconciliation because 2 Corinthians 5, you know, 10 to 21 says, you know, that we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. We have that. That's true. I agree. But it's not the ministry of racial reconciliation. The ministry of reconciliation right. is that <laughs> we proclaim that, you know, a way has been made back to God, that sinful yes. hearts can be united yes. to a holy God. That's cool. That, but then don't don't insert racial because that, that that would be out of context. Crazy context thing there. Yes. Now, <laughs> and then they jump to you know, and the dividing wall of hostility has been torn down, so we have to make sure that we know the dividing wall of hostility, which was a true dividing wall, and um, you know, in in the original context and um, the ancient time, there was a dividing wall that kept out proselytes from Jews, from true Jews. And so, what right. the what Paul is saying there is that that dividing wall has been torn down, so now we are truly one group. And when we look at other scriptures, Colossians, Galatians, John 17, what when we look at what our unity is, our unity is afforded to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. We truly are brothers and sisters, according to um, Ephesians. It was to God's good pleasure to adopt us. And so when we talk about this idea that races have to reconcile, that actually isn't true, especially because the idea of race in our modern context is not even written in the scriptures. We can talk mm. about ethnicity and things like that, but it's it, it, it's a false idea to say that racists have to reconcile when truly we become family. You can't become any more reconciled than that. You know, when we read the early parts of Ephesians, we are reconciled together. And then the rest of Ephesians talks about, you know, how do we walk together now that we are reconciled? How do we maintain our unity? And so that's what our curriculum reconciled is about. It's about how do we, you know, understand our reconciliation in Christ and walk together as believers. What would you say to the pastor who doesn't want to address difficult issues in their church because they might lose people? How honest do you want me to be? Very. Step down. <laughs> that would be my only answer. You need to step down. We cannot afford in this day to have you as a pastor. If you are afford if you are afraid to lose people or to lose tithe, you need to step down. That that would be my I only that I, I I don't really know. Like I'm sure people are gonna click off, not gonna like what I have to say, but that's the only answer because I don't have any point, disagreement. Thank you. There we go. Like, I don't really know what else to say. Like, you aren't strong enough for the position. That and that's that's so mean. I know my heart. Like, I wrestle through it. But if the world is going to to stop, it, here's the thing: we have to understand our familial bond. Mm. If someone were to walk up to someone in my family, push them, punch them, try to harm them, you gonna get all of me. Now, I was raised in South Central Los Angeles for the majority of my life. <laughs> I fight, 
I don't fight fair. If, if you come, like, I'll pick up something and hit you with it. Like, and yeah, you can, y'all should pray for my heart, okay? Because I'm probably <laughs> revealing too much. But it's the same when we think about our, our familial family in the body of Christ. We should be looking at these ideologies and worldviews that are coming in and plucking off our people this, the same way as a threat coming against someone in our family. And so, hey, if you want to go, you're going to have to go. But what I'm not going to do is have you up here abusing and beating on and lying to the, the body of Christ. You might need to go on and, and walk that road and see where that leads you. I would hate for you to go. My heart will mourn. I'll be sad. I will pray for you. But trust me, the world's going to eat you up. They, yep. You need to stay over here under the shepherd. Mm. I and I I appreciate you for saying it plain and saying it strong. And I think the point that I'm really trying to get at, and we're actually going to talk about it in our next episode, but the point I'm really bothered by right now is the shying away um, on issues or any topic if it means subtraction. I, I'm kind of calling that growth at all costs in our church. And I just I just feel like that day is done. I don't think we can afford that approach because the world is not taking that approach with our, with our young people and with, Mm -hmm. and with our TikTok accounts and with our, you know, with, with, with it's, that's not the playing field anymore. And so I, I I appreciate your strength because I, I, I feel like that's one of the fundamental changes that's happened in the landscape of the church. I agree. I agree. Now here's the thing. And I know, I know that, you know, it it can be strong to be like, you need to step down. Some pastors may feel like, man, I have so much on my plate. How do I address this? What I am not saying is that every senior pastor must be the expert on everything. You Mm -hmm. can establish a council. You can have the Center for Biblical Unity come in. You can, there are different ways that you can get creative about empowering and educating your people to stay orthodox in their faith. I am not saying that every pastor now needs to be an expert and read all the books on critical race theory, critical queer theory, critical religious studies, critical child theory. Like, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that you can't be so deficient in thinking about these things that you you will participate according to the culture just so you don't lose your tithe or your person. Yeah. I, you know, I'll offer a comment I heard my pastor make in a more private setting a couple of years back. I believe Jason and Josh were both there. Uh, some of us were at a pastor's meeting late in 2020. You know, we were all trying to get our heads around things. And I remember my pastor saying something along the lines of, if God is asking you to say something, then you need to say it. You know, if, and and just kind of that, that level of confidence, in other words, the ability to open ourselves up in prayer and open ourselves up to the possibilities of God, what would you have me address right now? And what, what, what needs do my congregation have and not shut things off simply because they're divisive or simply because they might, they might shrink the room a little bit. I, I remember that was the first time I really heard a significant leader in my life say that and really put that stake down. And, and, and I feel like our church has been better and is stronger because of it. And I don't think a pastor has to preach on it every weekend or has to overtake their entire social voice or, you know, something like that. But I think just that ability to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit. And if God is asking you, to address something as the shepherd, as the under shepherd, as the leadership team of your church, then the the ability to be obedient to that and respond and be and be faithful. I think that that was one of the most helpful pastoral things I heard, kind of in that twenty twenty recalibrating season for all of us. Well, I just want to point out something that Monique said that I think is really helpful because I know. Um, some guys might not be addressing it because they're afraid to lose people. But I also know a lot of guys who are just fatigued and tired Mm. and it's such an emotional, this spiritual battle, it's just emotionally draining. And so I, I think what Monique said is so helpful that, and couple that with what Brandon just said, that 
um, it doesn't necessarily have to be you saying it. Like, even if God said, you need to address this, it's your responsibility as the shepherd of the house or as the shepherd of that team, you know, obviously submitted to authority, um, to, to, it's your responsibility to make sure that it is resourced and equipped and talked about. But I, I know guys who, when they hear stuff like this, they're like, and then I also have to develop a leadership track and then I have to do this and I have to do this. And, and then they hear, and you need to do this because it's on TikTok, it's on your kids' phones. And they're like, I don't have the bandwidth for this. Uh-huh. So I know there's probably some guys who are like, I don't want to lose people. I th- there's also a significant portion who sure. are, I'm just exhausted, man. Like, yeah. I don't know if I have what it takes for this fight, which is where then you have wonderful ministries like the Center for Biblical Unity that you can leverage that voice, leverage Monique, um, leverage trusted people so that your people can be equipped, but that you can focus on uh, other things. And it's not getting pushed to the wayside just because you're gassed. Yes. I think what you're, what you're saying reminds me of act six in the, the forming of deacons. And they were like, you know, um, you know, should we give up the ministry of the word to wait tables? And Mm. we know that there are, you know, we know that senior leadership and, and, you know, many within the church are spinning a lot of plates and, you know, and, you know, like we see in act six, this also needs to be addressed. So who can you bring in? to help yes. address this issue um, and, and and address it in a way that is wise, that is not like the culture. What I'm referring to are, are those who are in leadership that don't want to address something or they're going to shy away That's from right. it because, you know, they're going to lose people. Yeah. They, they may know the truth, but they don't want to lose people. Yes. That's who I'm addressing. Totally. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, Jason, do you have a question at all to land here? I got one after after this. Yeah, just you know, um, thinking through like somebody's hearing this conversation, and hopefully there's some inspiration, like to use your voice, get involved. Uh, just what's something really practical you would tell a pastor, or we're talking to church teams today, um, like that maybe hasn't gotten in the game or you know used their voice. Um, I know we've been all around it today, but just something practical like. Uh, for pastors on how to approach this. I think, you know, the narrative a while back was, uh, you know, you need to listen, you need to learn. And certainly, you know, there's so much value in that. But what we're encouraging people in this conversation is, hey, lift up your voice. Um, and particularly white pastors, what what would you say uh, to to take a foray into that and start stepping in? So my that? encouragement to white pastors is the same encouragement I would give to black pastors. You need to know the truth. We be, and and I and I specifically say that because the scriptures don't differentiate between white and black, and so right. white pastors, black pastors, I don't. Know, you can be blue with purple polka dots. I could care less if you don't know the word of God. You're it, it it's not going to end well. So you need to yeah. dig in and really make sure that you know the word of God. Now, secondly, I would say if you don't have a lot of time on your hands, go follow the Center for Biblical Unity on Instagram, um, Facebook. Twitter, whatever, and we um, or sign up for our weekly newsletter. Mm. We send out an email once a week on Sundays that then send out um, like what we've put out in social media or resources to help people think through what's happening in our current conversation on race and racism. So then you can just get a quick look at, oh, I didn't know this term or, oh, this is what happens here and begin to, you know, arm yourself with some of what's happening in culture. Another thing I would say is when you realize or when you know that you are understanding the word of God in context and that you are orthodox and a historic Christian, not, you know, participating in progressive Christianity or things like that, read a first source. So a good book that I have on critical race theory is Critical Race Theory and Introduction by Gene Delgado and Richard. No, it is Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanich. Um, it's a, a primer. Like it's really um, an easy read. This is the newest edition. It came out earlier this year. And they are two of the founding members of Critical Race Theory itself. They were at the original conference back in um, Wisconsin at, at the end of the 80s. And so understand what some of the tenets are. So then you can begin to recognize it when people um, happen to say it in conversation or when the idea slips through. 
And then another thing I would say, you know, just in the beginning stages is don't be afraid. You're going to have to really gird up, you know, and, and, you know, take a stand and trust that you can stand and stand firmly with God and that there is not going to be a, you know, that he let me down or he disappointed me or he, you know, people might walk away. People might choose, you know, another road, but standing firm with God under the power of the Holy Spirit will never result in failure. Like we're not, we won't, we have a promise that we can stand firm with, with Jesus and we can trust his word. And so that would be my last piece of encouragement is to stand and to trust. I'll, I'll never forget. Um, there was a specific Sunday, I guess it's been a couple of years back now. My pastor, um, specifically addressed some of the topics that we've talked about today on Sunday morning. And he actually, um, promoted a book, you know, in, in service. And it, I mean, it was a strong, strong pointed day that, that I remember. And I actually was the service, you know, MC host that had to take the stage, you know, to close service after the message and the altar call. And so he had people bow their heads and I actually made my way up to the stage. So I was up there kind of looking at the room when he was giving the, the, salvation call. And I, and you know, it was, it was just an interesting day. We were, we were still, you know, newer in the journey of really addressing some of this stuff on Sunday. And I was interested in terms of how is the salvation call going to go? How, how is that moment going to go now that we've just really gone after some of the toughest subjects we could this morning. And you know, it was so amazing was the room was full of hands. Number one of people accepting Christ or wanting to you know take that step. Mm-hmm. And the second thing I noticed was most hands raised were by people of color. Meaning this that like we actually have seen response in our church from from black people, people of color saying, I I want to move past this. I want to follow Christ. Though exactly where you started us today, I choose the Christian road. I just think we have to have confidence that as we declare the word of God, that the Holy Spirit is gonna work through that and continue to build his church and draw people unto himself, and that this will not hurt those efforts. It will actually help those efforts. Um, when we tell people the truth and I just, I'll, I'll never forget that day because it, it reminded me and it showed me, um, that we don't need to shy away from this. And that, that when we truly tell people the truth, Jesus will build his church. Amen. And amen. Yeah. I, 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 I cannot agree with you more. You know, at the Center for Biblical Unity, we say that unity is our starting point. When we come mm. into Christ, we are now unified with one another based on scripture. So unity is our starting point. It's an, And this is the, the model of biblical unity as opposed to racial reconciliation, which would say we need to do all of these works first to get, you know, and get to the table of reconciliation and all that. And so, you know, I think inviting people to understand what the scriptures say in context is so pivotal, you know, for having these conversations. And then like you, you said with your pastor, you know, recommend a book, let, let them see for themselves. But that I say that step is definitely meant for those who understand the word of God in context. Yeah. The book I just recommended, um, I wouldn't recommend for someone who, um, doesn't understand their identity in Christ and the sure. identity of believers in Christ, because this book is filled with lies. I do not, you know, support <laughs> this book or things like that, right. but right. I need to understand. I need to, I need to know what a wolf looks like. I need to know what a wolf sounds like. And this book will help you with that. Yeah. Hey, you are, you're so brilliant. You're a gift to the church and we're grateful for you today, Monique. Um, thank you for your time. Thank you for your perspective. I'm going to let you have the last word here, and I'm just going to ask you a simple question to land this plane today. What is your greatest prayer for the church right now in this season? Wisdom. Um, Mm. Wisdom. That's my greatest prayer, I think, for the church, because... When we when we have wisdom, then we'll be able to understand what the word of God says and means for us. Uh, some people would say, well, why aren't you praying for unity? Well, because in John 17, it says that I have given them what they need for unity, um, that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about our unity and how we are unified. Like we see that in, in the New Testament. And so 
We need wisdom to know how to approach the topic. We need unity to know how to teach people. And we need unit. Um, we need, sorry, we need wisdom to know how to approach the topic, wisdom to know how to, how to, you know, teach people and then wisdom to know how to apply the scripture so that we can maintain the unity that we already have. Very good. Beautiful. Thanks, my friend. Glad to have you on. Thanks. Today. Thanks so much. Okay, well, I hope today's conversation has helped you, blessed you, share it with your team. Uh, let us be a voice into your world to help you frame in these issues with your team. I believe this will help all of us to be faithful uh, in this season. And hey, we're back next week for part four. We're going to land the plane and we're going to take a different direction next week. We're going to talk about um, some important leadership topics and how do we handle uh, situations like leadership failures and, um, you know, mindsets in the church that have led, have led us to unhealthy places. I believe that's going to be an important conversation next week. I encourage you to be back and join us for part four as we wrap up our summer series. Until then, Leading Second, we love you. We're thankful for you. We're praying for you. Until next time, let's run strong for the kingdom and lead in an uncommon way together. To find the episode guide, visit our website, leadingsecond.com forward slash podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram at Leading Second and join us on the Leading Second Collective on Facebook. Facebook.